Hello, everybody. Um, I'm Kia Ora. So from today's session, um, you will gain an understanding of how to plan and design intersections to make sure they cater for pedestrian needs. Um, we have almost a thousand people registered for today's session, which is very exciting. So welcome to all of you and thanks for joining us. Uh, my name is Ekaterina. I'm a communications officer at Austroads and I will be moderating today's session. So first of all, I would like to acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. I pay my respect to all this past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the regional people of New Zealand. A little bit about Austroads. Uh, we are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies, and our focus is to support our member organizations to deliver an improved road transport network. Uh, the project that we are focusing on today was delivered under the Transport Network Operations Program, which is managed by Richard Bell Place. Um, a little bit of housekeeping as usual. Um, so our presenters will speak for 40 minutes and then we will have a Q&A session for 15 minutes. Um, a few handouts for today. On the right-hand side of your screen, in the handout section of your sidebar, you will find um, the report today's session is based on, presentation slides, um, navigation graphic that explains how to find uh, pedestrian content in the Austroad guides, and the crossing design elements handout. Um, there is also a question section there, so please use it to send us uh, your questions for the Q&A at any time during the webinar. And if you could let us know the slide number that your question relates to, that would be very helpful for us to answer your question as best as we can. Um, you can also use that same question box to um, let us know if you have any technical problems. But just a quick tip, um, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, the issue is most likely with your internet connection. So leaving the session, uh, closing the browser and rejoining the session by your registration link usually helps. Um, so this session is being recorded and we will let you know when the recording is available on our website. And also, if you listen to podcasts, um, you will find Austroads in your podcast app. So our presenters um, for today, um, Anne-Marie Head and Jeanette Ward from Ebley. We will first hear from Jeanette. Uh, Jeanette is a technical director at Ebley um, and a member of the People and Places team. Uh, she has a diverse uh, engineering background that allows her to see urban environments from a range of perspective um, and a specific interest um, in street design. Jeanette has been involved in a range of industry guidance projects um, and as a practitioner, she understands the level of detail people require for various topics. And our second presenter is Anne-Marie Head. Um, she's an associate director at Ebley and also a member of the People and Places team, uh, which is focused on planning and designing complex um, urban environments for safe and healthy people. Um, and Marie has a specific interest in planning and designing for active travel modes and understanding the multiple benefits these modes uh, bring to individuals, the community and the planet. Um, so welcome to our presenters and I will now hand over to Jeanette. Thanks, thank you, Serena, and welcome everybody to today's session. This webinar is a one of a series of seven webinars about planning and designing for pedestrians. We presented the first two about planning for pedestrians and measuring pedestrians in the middle of last year. This month, we're presenting five webinars and you can see the topic dates here. These next few slides are just about the project. Amory has covered off this in the very first couple of webinars, so go to that if you want more detail. 
But I will just briefly thank Robin Davies and Michael Langdon from the Queensland Department of Transport and Main Roads, who promoted the inclusion of training webinars in the scope of this project. And we're hoping that the suite of seven webinars will really bring the key principles of planning for pedestrians and designing for pedestrians to life. A key part of our project team was the Austroads Working Group, which included a number of jurisdictional representatives, as shown here. A big thanks to them as well. The research phase of this project was carried out in 2019, and we recognise that new techniques and practice are evolving all the time. Austroads research is ongoing, and there have been other relevant research projects published since we completed our work. Of particular relevance to this webinar is some research about raised safety platforms. And these treatments are sometimes used where pedestrians can cross. There is a webinar scheduled on the 4th of March um, that will present the outcomes of that research. I also just want to point out that Austroids develop guidance with input from the jurisdictions and it is acknowledged that some jurisdictions will retain their own guidance for some topic areas. This um, slide here just shows the various um, parts that we looked at and um, most of them are related to guide traffic management and guide to road design. The road design changes will be made in due course, but the traffic management changes have been made. Given that the information about planning and designing for pedestrians is contained in many of the guides, we have developed a navigation graphic that might help you to find what you're looking for. It's available for download, as Ekaterina said. We've also put together a handout that provides further guidance on the design requirements for different crossing treatments. And this is the same, <coughs> excuse me, same handout as we referred to in our crossings webinar last week. But some of the content is also relevant for intersections. You can find this in the handout section of the toolbar. There were some questions from last week's crossing webinar that we didn't have time to answer, so we are going to try and cover them off today. One of the questions was around signage and the um, general layout diagrams not including that signage. We haven't shown the signage as it differs between jurisdictions, particularly between New Zealand and Australia. So we have left the signage off and you will need to look at your jurisdictional guidance or legal requirements for signage. This particular webinar today is about how to ensure pedestrians are planned, designed and also operated appropriately for pedestrians. We will indicate where to find guidance in Austroads and where that content, and also just note that content from our last Friday's webinar about crossings is also relevant. The references in the bottom left hand corner of each slide is about the uh, reference of where it comes from and we've also used colour coding to indicate if the guidance is existing, updated or brand new. So the green will indicate that this is new content. A reminder here that the design-related updates we have recommended are still to be incorporated into the Guide to Road Design, but the bulk of the recommended changes have been included in our webinars and the handouts. We will also present some project examples to illustrate what we're talking about today, but these are not included in the guides. Intersections are formed where roads meet. Intersections tend to be a focus of conflict between vehicles, including bicycles, and pedestrians. Enabling pedestrians to cross at intersections is a key part of a continuous and connected network. In our webinar last week, we covered the planning and design of mid-block crossings. Today, we will build on that, on how to 
plan and design a great crossing facility at an intersection. To illustrate the importance of getting crossings right for pedestrians, a paper was published last week in the Journey of Road Safety, which studied a sample of pedestrian fatal and serious injuries here in New Zealand. There is a link here to the paper. It was called Fatal Footsteps. A key result that stood out for us in this research was that 25% of death and serious injury cases occurred where a pedestrian attempted to cross an urban road mid-block with no nearby crossing facilities. In addition, nearly 13% of the DSI crashes also involved a pedestrian being struck on a priority crossing, that is either a zebra or a signalised crossing. This just demonstrates the risk and for the importance of making crossings safer, providing them where they needed and making sure they're designed properly. One of the most important considerations for pedestrians is their vulnerability when hit by a vehicle, which is a particular concern when we're talking about intersections, given that pedestrians and vehicles need to cross paths. The probability of survival for a pedestrian decreases at vehicle impact speeds above about 30 kilometres an hour, shown in this figure. This graph is now included in the Guide to Traffic Management Part 4. So ensuring vehicle speeds are low, particularly at intersections, is a key principle to remember. Minimising vehicle speeds can be achieved by a range of different methods, including narrowing the approach roads, like this example here in Wellington, where they've reduced the width of the road at the intersection and created a speed gateway. Or you can also use raised platforms. There are other issues encountered by pedestrians at intersections and crossings, and these were summarised in a table 3.13 in the Guide to Traffic Management Part 6. The table goes through, through these issues, describes them, and then suggests treatments that could be applied to mitigate each issue. We've just got a few examples here today, but should suggest you go and have a look at the full table as it's very helpful. So for example, perceived safety is important for pedestrians. Research shows that pedestrians perceive that the safest form of crossing is one where the vehicle traffic is completely stopped. There are many ways the issue of perceived safety can be addressed, from providing more controlled forms of crossings, as well as more general treatments, like reducing traffic speeds and volumes, and also providing good visibility to make the crossing feel safer for pedestrians. Another example from the table is that pedestrian waiting areas can be inadequate in terms of space, and there are also instances where long, unprotected crossing distances are an issue. This can occur when, when there are narrow footpaths or if there isn't actually a refuge to wait in. Often waiting areas are not suitable for people with disabilities or it is difficult for them to navigate their way through obstacles. Ways to improve these issues would be to widen the footpath, which could be into the verge or by installing curb extensions. Another way would be to provide a medium or refuge island. Let's just have a look, a closer look at uh, storage space and long crossing distances with a couple of examples. This example here on the left is a wide pedestrian refuge island with ample storage for people with bikes, prams and mobility devices. This is the crossing at the end of my street that we included in the previous webinar and a lot of people have asked for more information about it so I will give you a little bit more on this later. The crossing on the right has curb ramps that do not align and the narrow splitter island is right in the middle of their crossing path. The overall total distance to cross is 15 and they 
15 metres and they don't have any metre weight. So another question that was asked in last week's webinar was related to the curb edge of pedestrian islands. I answered the question by saying that here in New Zealand we mostly use the semi-mountable curb profiles as shown in the left-hand photo. Someone from New South Wales pointed out that they have moved to fully vertical island edges. I'd just like to point out Osroads doesn't specify the curb design, so you will need to check what your jurisdiction specifications are. It's worth recapping here on the nine characteristics that make up a walkable environment. We've mentioned these in all of our webinars to date. Intersections tend to be a focus point for pedestrians to cross, so these characteristics apply here as well. Some examples to illustrate this. So, connected. It's appropriate for facility. You need to provide appropriate facilities for pedestrians at intersections to ensure that our walking routes are connected. And obviously, ensuring facilities at intersections are safe for people is also very important. There are three broad intersection types relevant for pedestrians that we're going to discuss today. These are unsignalised intersections that could be either uncontrolled, give way or stop intersections. And these are the most common intersections on our networks. Then there are traffic signal control intersections, which are more likely in busier areas or on higher order roads in the network. And finally, roundabouts, which are found in many different road environments. Today, we will discuss the different traffic management and design treatments that will assist pedestrians at these intersection types. But firstly, how do you decide what type of intersection to include? There is a flowchart here in Guide to Traffic Management Part 6, and that works through the things you need to think about. But essentially, there are a number of factors to consider, including your safe system objectives and what your performance objectives might be. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about this here, except to say that pedestrians should be considered from the outset, not as an afterthought. I've also included a link to a research project that Osros published last year, which identifies safe system aligned treatments for pedestrians and cyclists that can be helpful to guide decision making. When thinking about the intersection type, it's not just about new intersections, but it's also about converting existing intersections to another form. I will now show you a couple of examples of in existing intersections that have been through the process of considering how they might be changed to meet their particular project objectives. Here is an example of a project in Auckland. So Franklin, Franklin Road was recently upgraded to improve the road quality and to also provide an opportunity to coordinate the upgrade of utilities such as stormwater and electricity, etc. At the same time, a range of improvements were made to provide an urban streetscape that accommodates all road users, while also retaining natural heritage values, including providing for the safe movement of pedestrians, cyclists and vehicles. Franklin Road is an important connection between Ponsonby and the central city of Auckland. There are over 14,000 vehicles using it per day, including buses and large heavy vehicles. The Franklin Road intersection with England Street was a cross intersection with priority to Franklin Road road traffic. Cyclists and pedestrians had trouble crossing Franklin Road. There was a zebra for them um, offset from the intersection, but for people going through, that was slightly out of their route. So the intersection was changed to a roundabout with zebra crossings on each leg providing priority to pedestrians. 
So once again, here is that crossing at the end of my street. So you can see that the before situation was a wide road with no crossing facilities. So I'm on Sheldon Street and I want to get to the other side of Bradley Street. But it was very difficult to cross, particularly given that bend in the road you can just see to the right hand side of the photo. But then along came a cycleway project and as part of this project they converted the currently four-way intersection to a left-in, left-out intersection. The image on the right is taken during construction so it doesn't look very pretty but essentially that shows you how the use of that refuge island created um, not only a place for cyclists to cut through but also two pedestrian crossing points. This has been a great um, improvement for everyone in the neighbourhood. Just note that the uh, streets to either side, so Sheldon Street, which I live on, was um, converted to a neighbourhood greenway or a bike boulevard, as I know that some states refer to them as. So also note that the Austroads um, pedestrian facility tool can also provide input for decision-making for intersections. So it's not just for mid-block. This image is a screenshot of part of the outputs from a selection tool that made for a made-up scenario. The treatments that are not appropriate are greyed out, and for each of the other various um, outputs there, you see different colour coding. We've talked about tactical urbanism in our previous webinars, but just a reminder that you can also use this approach for intersection changes. For example, the left-hand image shows a trial of an exit-only intersection treatment that shortens the pedestrian crossing distance, just through the use of planter boxes and flexible posts. So I'm now just gonna run you through a couple of um, considerations to think about before Anne-Marie talks you through the different forms. So here is a table listing the features um, that we have discussed in the previous webinar. So I do suggest you have a look at that. But in terms of the last one on that list, the design vehicle speed, Vertical deflection in the form of a raised platform can be a good way to slow vehicle traffic. So I'm just going to spend a few minutes discussing this. Here is a figure developed by Cameron Munro, who helped us with this project. He developed this as the background to a VicRoads um, project where a design note was created for the um, for raised safety platforms, and we've got a link there to that note. This graph is based on the findings of empirical studies undertaken over the years and provides some insight to the relationship between vertical speed and vertical acceleration. The graph shows you you need a vertical acceleration of 0.5 to 0.7 G to get a speed response from drivers. So that's the band colored green. So to achieve a design speed of 30 kilometers an hour, for example, you need the ramp gradient to be one in 15 or steeper. I'm just working through that, and there we go, one in 15. So at the moment, the most commonly adopted gradient is one in 12. But as I mentioned, a gradient of one in 15 would achieve 30 kilometers an hour. Ramp gradients of no more than one in 15 are generally regarded as bicycle friendly. And ramp gradients of no more than one in 20 are generally regarded as bus friendly. That bottom example shows a standard approach ramp and a smoother departure ramp for the comfort of buses. The only way you can really do this is with a refuge island between the two ramps. 
There is more information about ramp gradients in the newly published research report on race safety platforms, and there is a webinar coming up on that soon. So that will provide you with a bit more detail. Another important aspect for all places where pedestrians cross is how they get to the roadway. This is usually in the form of a curb ramp or a curb cut down. These are needed at most crossings to provide step three access for pedestrians. Curb ramps must be provided on both sides of a roadway so pedestrians cannot get stranded in the middle of the road. They should be constructed so they provide a smooth transition between the footpath and the road with no low points where water can collect. They should be aligned in the direction of travel. This is particularly important for people with vision impairment. And also the ramps should be fully contained within the crossing pavement markings. So here is an example of a curb ramp that doesn't cover the whole width of a crosswalk at um, a traffic signal crossing. This can restrict, restrict access by people with wheels in particular. Please do listen to that um, previous webinar about crossings um, as there is more detail on the design of curb ramps there. And finally, a general consideration is also um, the use of tactile ground indicators. So installing these correctly will result in a safer and more accessible environment for all people, and particularly those who are blind or have low vision. Warning indicators alert pedestrians to hazards in the continuous accessible path of travel, indicating where they should stop before proceeding further. Directional indicators should only be used where a person must deviate from the continuous accessible path to gain access to the road crossing point or the public transport access point or a significant um, public facility. I provided a link to the Australian standard where you can provide, provide, look for more information. But also there's a couple of links there to some Waka Kotahi, so that's New Zealand Transport Agency um, guidance. There is a note there that's really useful, um, very brief, but also very concise in how you um, design and install them. And also a webinar there that Anne-Marie and another colleague ran last year for Wakakatahi, which um, talks through how to do things and also has the point of view of, of a person with low vision. So I'm now going to hand you over to Anne-Marie to talk about various types of intersections. Thanks, Jeanette. Okay, let's start with uh, in unsignalised intersections. So as Jeanette mentioned, uncontrolled or give way or stop intersections are the most common in our urban environment. Generally, pedestrians do not have priority and have to find a gap in the traffic flow to cross at these intersections, unless there is a continuous footpath treatment or a raised zebra, um, which we'll talk about more soon. It's important to consider where pedestrians want to cross, in other words, their desire lines, and try to provide a crossing point as close to the desire lines as possible. It's also helpful to minimise the distance pedestrians have to cross, for example, by narrowing the road carriageway. Adequate visibility is needed between pedestrians and vehicle drivers, and there needs to be sufficient space for pedestrians to wait while crossing, taking into account the pedestrian demand at different times. This table outlines the treatments that can be added to assist people to cross at unsignalised intersections. We described curb extensions and pedestrian refuges in our crossings webinar last week, so go and have a look there if you want um, some more information. And the next three treatments, so that is zebras at side roads, continuous footpath treatments and raised intersections, I'll discuss in a minute. 
While I'm here, we had a question in our last webinar on crossings about the safety benefits of curb extensions versus a pedestrian refuge, or is it better to have both? In general, in terms of safety, you'd be better off having both curb extensions and a pedestrian refuge rather than just one of these treatments. They provide different benefits, but can also create issues that need to be mitigated. So you need to think about those like um, the potential to um, create a pinch point for cyclists traveling, traveling past them. So firstly, let's talk about side road treatments. As well as crossing treatments, you can install a traffic calming device prior to the crossing to reduce vehicle speeds on the approach. In this example, a road hump has been placed about five meters before the crossing. I'd just like to note though, if your jurisdiction allows continuous footpath treatments, it's probably better to do that as it would slow, as it would slow vehicles turning into and out of the side road. Zebra crossings, or ideally raised zebras, can be installed at side roads. Here's some examples, both in city centre locations where the pedestrian volumes are high and the function of the side road is pre predominantly for access rather than a movement function. We had a question in our last webinar, webinar about zebras on all four approaches at sig unsignalised intersections, similar to what is done in Europe. We have seen some of these operating effectively in Australia and New Zealand, but it really comes down to the context of where they're installed. And also a note here that zebra markings in Europe um, have a different meaning and operate under different road rules. I understand they are used at pedestrian crosswalks at traffic signals as well, and they don't have the same traffic control device requirements that are needed here. So we need to be careful about applying that um, in Australia and New Zealand. A continuous footpath treatment extends the footpath across a side road on the same grade. You need to be conscious of the road rules that apply in your jurisdiction. Um, so some places um, like New Zealand, the treatment needs to be slightly different. In most places, if the treatment is identical in colour and texture to the adjoining footpath, it can be treated as a road-related area and therefore pedestrians have the right of way. But as I just noted, in New Zealand, this road rule doesn't apply. So to get, to get around that, you've got to um, highlight it as a place to cross, but it doesn't give pedestrians priority. To um, ensure there's no confusion, the surface and colour should be distinct from the footpath and it should include other cues like tactile indicators. So it's clear that pedestrians do not have the priority and that is shown in the image on the right there. Further information on these can be found in the Guide to Traffic Management Part 8 called Local Street Management. Um, but just a summary here, they're generally appropriate where there are more pedestrians wishing to cross than vehicles using the side road. And the vehicle speeds need to be low, um, we said less than 20 kilometres an hour. Ideally, traffic would be one way into the side street, but it's recognised this is not always possible. Another option is to limit turning movements. Um, so, for example, to left in, left out on the side road, just to simplify which drivers would need to give way to the pedestrians crossing. And obviously, if you did that, you would need to consider the impacts on traffic operations in the area and on the main road. We've recommended that some design information is included in part four of the Guide to Road Design. And this diagram has been included for now in your crossing handout. It also includes a design elements table, which um, discusses some of the principles to consider and some suggested dimensions. Of course, you need to make sure you refer to any specifications that apply in your jurisdiction for these. 
And just a note that the green shading indicates some form of curb extension. It may not always include landscaping. So the example shown on the left there from Melbourne um, is in fact a paved curb extension. What about raising the whole intersection? Raised intersections reduce vehicle speeds if the platform ramp gradients are effective as Jeanette just talked about earlier. Although it slows vehicle speeds, um, they don't give priority to pedestrians unless you also provide some other form of treatment like zebra crossings. You probably want to provide curb extensions at the intersection to narrow the traffic lanes and also help to slow the vehicle speeds. Um, this also helps reduce the crossing distance for pedestrians. In some instances, particularly where there are higher traffic volumes, you might need to still provide pedestrian refuges to make it easier for people to cross, as shown in the right-hand um, picture. There's some more information and some project examples in a conference paper that Jeanette wrote last year at that link, so have a look if you're interested there. And here's an example of a giveaway controlled intersection that already had curb extensions to narrow the crossing distance. That's shown in the left-hand photo. Um, and then the whole intersection was subsequently raised to reduce the vehicle speeds and highlight that pedestrians may be crossing here on the right. Just a reminder to um, please send any questions you have through to the Q&A and to help us answer your question if you can let us know the slide number that your question relates to. Okay, moving on to signalised intersections. Signalised intersections are safer for pedestrians than unsignalised intersections, but they do add delay to both pedestrians and drivers. It's best to design the intersection to be as compact as possible, which minimises the crossing distances and therefore the time, but you need to be cognisant of meeting road space and vehicle sweat path needs. You need to ensure there is enough space for pedestrians to wait, Bear in mind there may be pedestrian peaks, for example, if the intersection is near a school, as in this photo here. There are designs that can accommodate cyclists too. And the signal phasing and timings are important considerations. Um, I'll talk a bit more about that soon. I just also want to mention here that Ostrode's research found that in terms of pedestrians distracted by mobile phones, a lot of the distraction and risky behaviour was reported at signalised crossings. Uh, they thought the researchers thought there may be a view that it's okay um, due to the control of the signals and the advantage of crossing in a group where people can rely on others to monitor their safety when crossing. I thought that was quite an interesting point. So some aspects that can help pedestrians at signalised intersections include curb extensions, as I mentioned, to minimise the crossing distances and the time to cross. Medians can allow two-stage crossing movements for pedestrians, and this can be more efficient because it requires less pedestrian green time, but increases the delay for pedestrians as they have to wait twice. Widening the crosswalk can accommodate more pedestrians crossing at once, so you tend to see those in activity centre locations. And then there are, um, of course, many signal phasing and timing options to choose from. So I'm going to very briefly talk about phasing options. There's a lot to know and there could actually be a whole webinar on this topic alone. So crashes involving pedestrians are a significant source of fatal and serious injury crashes at urban signalised intersections. So pedestrian movements should be protected by the signal phasing, particularly the conflicts between right turning vehicles and pedestrians. 
There is further information on different phasing options for pedestrians in a table in um, part nine of the Guide to Traffic Management. Um, but briefly, there are three methods listed here that I will explain on the following slides. Also note that signal infrastructure for pedestrians such as push buttons and other forms of detection are also covered in part nine of the Guide to Traffic Management. So a barn stance or scramble crossing means there is a special phase for pedestrians when all other road users are stopped and pedestrians can walk in any direction through the intersection, including diagonally. They con consolidate all pedestrian movements at an intersection into one phase, so they are generally good for areas with high pedestrian and turning volumes like activity centres. These crossings have been around a long time. Here's a photo from, 19, from the 1960s in Dunedin. Um, eight intersections in Dunedin have been or are to be converted to barn stances, so going back to the past. Here in Christchurch, we have also created barn stances in our central city rebuild. I think we only had one before the earthquakes. And note the warning tactile indicators are around the entire curb within the barn dance zone. Uh, the image on the right, um, this particular intersection, is entirely raised, um, so the speeds are low and no curb ramps are required. Another common form of phasing is for the pedestrian movement to run concurrently with the parallel vehicle movement. Um, but as I said, the right turning conflict is the issue. So the best option is to have full control of vehicle movements, which means the right and left turns are held back, so there's no conflict, conflict with pedestrians crossing. If full control is not possible, then partial control of vehicle movements is, is required, often by delaying the start of their movement. So here, vehicle traffic is prevented from turning across the crossing for the initial part of the pedestrian walk period, and then vehicles are allowed to proceed, provided they give way to any pedestrians still using the crossing. And I'd just like to note that the Guide to Traffic Management Part 9 reiterates that filter right turns should only be used following an assessment that shows the road safety risk is low. Just briefly about um, two-stage crossings. Um, so these can be okay where it's not practical to allow them, people to cross in one movement. For example, where the crossing time would be too long within the overall cycle time. Staging the crossings does provide greater flexibility in the overall phasing arrangements um, for the intersection, but there needs to be enough space for pedestrians to wait in the median, and it also does increase, tend to increase the delay for pedestrians. Pedestrian countdown timers um, are becoming very popular. They are often installed at, at scramble or barn stance crossings. Countdown timers show the time remaining until the end of the pedestrian phase, so this provides some comfort to pedestrians that they have the time to cross and may reduce pedestrian non-compliance, but they don't really improve the level of service for pedestrians. Things like um, minimising the cycle time and therefore the wait time for pedestrians will likely improve the level of service for pedestrians, so that's another aspect um, to consider. Okay, moving on to slip lanes. Slip lanes are most often found at large signalised intersections, but they can also, uh, they do also exist at motorway on and off ramps. Slip lanes obviously require pedestrians to cross two carriageways, so they can increase the crossing distance and the number of conflict points. So they can be less safe and not as easy for some pedestrians to cross, especially if they don't have priority across the slip lane. 
A big caveat here, it's fair to say there's conflicting research around slip lane safety, and it's probably down to there being different slip lane forms as well as different treatments set in different contexts and road rules. For example, in Victoria, we understand that drivers must give way to pedestrians crossing the slip lane, whether there is a marked or an unmarked crossing. So it's recommended that intersections be evaluated individually on a case-by-case -case basis with regard to slip lane, whether there should be a slip lane or not, rather than applying a blanket approach requiring a certain treatment. So one of the first considerations should be whether a slip lane is needed for traffic operation purposes. If it's not needed, then it's probably better not to have it. If a slip lane is needed, then there are some treatments to improve pedestrian safety and comfort at these slip lanes. These are to ensure the slip lane has a high entry angle, so vehicles using the slip lane have to slow to enter the intersecting road. There are options to signalise the slip lane, which can improve safety, but also increases delay for both pedestrians and vehicles. Or you can install a raised zebra to provide priority to pedestrians. Raised zebras can improve safety, and research has found that slip lanes with flush zebra crossings were less safe than those without marked crossings. So here's an example of a large intersection with two slip lanes um, in Christchurch. The slip lane at the at the bottom of the photo is a high entry angle um, lane, which is preferred where pedestrians are present because it slows the vehicle speeds. This one has a flush zebra on the slip lane to give priority to pedestrians crossing. The other slip lane is in the top right of the photo, and that's a free flow left turn slip lane. So this means the speeds are naturally higher because drivers turning left will be able to make the turn and join the intersecting road at the average operating speed. But because pedestrians need to cross here, a raised zebra has been installed to slow vehicle speeds. It does work really well. Just a note, it may not look raised here, um, and that's because the zebra markings extend over the ramp, which is a bit of an interesting way of doing things. Obviously, another option would be to signalise the slip lane to provide a safe crossing for pedestrians, but noting that would increase delays to pedestrians and also motorists. And if you'd like to dig a bit deeper into slip lane um, safety and efficiency, here are some selected papers um, that you could have a look at. Moving to roundabouts. Compared to traffic signal controlled intersections, roundabouts can be a significant impediment to movement for pedestrians. This is particularly so at high volume or higher speed roundabouts or ones with multiple lanes. And as pedestrians generally don't have um, priority across the legs, it can be very difficult for people with um, disabilities or um, slower moving pedestrians to find a large enough gap in the traffic to cross. So designers need to consider vehicle speed through the roundabouts, as well as including facilities to assist pedestrians to cross. And I'll talk a little bit more about these treatment options. Firstly, though, let's talk about multi-lane roundabouts. So these types of roundabouts, particularly where vehicles travel at high speeds, are very difficult for pedestrians to cross safely and conveniently. They're not recommended where pedestrians are present or you need to do some other form of treatment, probably a signalised crossing, to mitigate that. Here is an example where, in fact, a signalised crossing has been added um, and I'll talk a bit more about this as a, a bit of a case study in a minute. Compact roundabout designs can be safer and more comfortable for pedestrians to cross. These are single lane roundabouts, 
designed so the vehicle speeds are low, so that is less than 30 k's an hour. The entry and exit radii, splitter islands, and narrower traffic lane, lane widths are designed to reinforce the slower speeds. This way they can be suitable for all users in urban situations, including pedestrians and cyclists. These roundabouts prioritise safety over capacity. There is some guidance available at that link to the cycle network guidance um, developed by Waka Kotahi here in New Zealand. As for the other intersection types, there are treatments that can be applied at roundabouts to assist people to cross. The first thing is to get the roundabout design right, so a compact design is one way of achieving that. Other aspects are to ensure that the splitter islands are large enough to accommodate pedestrians waiting to cross, providing clear visibility so pedestrians can see vehicles coming and make decisions about when to cross. Street lighting is important, um, and of course the basics like curb crossings and tactile cues or indicators. The example here is an urban roundabout with raised platforms to help pedestrians to cross and to increase their visibility. So in summary, there are a range of treatments you can apply at roundabouts to help pedestrians. We've talked about most of these already in the crossings webinar, but applying them at a roundabout will add other considerations, particularly if you're adding a treatment that gives priority to pedestrians, so a zebra, a raised zebra or wombat, or signals. You'll need to consider the location of this treatment in relation to the roundabout, and in particular, where vehicles will stop when they give way to at the roundabout versus the pedestrian crossing. I'll now go through some successful treatments at roundabouts um, to accommodate pedestrians. Just before I do that, um, pedestrian crossing points at roundabouts should be located on the desire lines. Often crossings are located further back from the vehicle hold line, which gives everyone more time to observe each other and can make it easier for pedestrians to find a gap to cross if they don't have priority, or it can give drivers time to give way in two steps if there is a priority crossing. But in general, the further you put the crossing away from the intersection means crossing compliance will drop and pedestrians choose the shortest route. So here on this image, you can see where pedestrians take the shortest route across the roundabout, uh, across the grass, and it's, it's worn out there. So now to some examples. Here is the example I mentioned before, a large multi-lane roundabout in a peri-urban area where two new high schools were built nearby. This created a high pedestrian crossing demand across one leg, um, in particular as kids travelled to and from the school. Previously there was a median refuge as shown in this photo here. The solution um, was a single stage signalised crossing on a platform Although there is a median where people could wait in a two-stage crossing, given the peak demands with, two large, with the two large high schools, a single-stage crossing provides an easy-to-use facility, avoiding any issues with the median island storage area becoming overloaded. There was, um, were some design challenges in terms of um, whether to separate pedestrians and cyclists, um, and it was decided that a combined crossing would be provided to make the layout simple for drivers and also allow pedestrians and cyclists to use the full width of the crossing point. The location of the crossing point was decided by balancing the advanced visibility of the crossing for approaching drivers, providing enough queuing space so traffic doesn't queue back into the circulating lanes, but also not locating the crossing too far away from the intersection and the desire lines of the pedestrians and cyclists. 
More information about this crossing will be provided in a case study um, on the Cycling Network Guidance webpage, and there's a link there. Here is an example where zebra crossings were installed at roundabouts in an inner urban area in Melbourne. There are lots of pedestrians using this area, and there were roundabouts at every intersection on, on Cecil Street. The solution was to provide raised zebra crossings on each leg directly at the intersection, rather than in a more conventional location set back from the vehicle hold lines. So here you can see um, the pre-treatment and post-treatment. On the left um, is one of the roundabouts before adding the zebra, and on the right is after the raised crossings were installed. The raised zebras act as a slowing mechanism for approaching vehicles, and the post-treatment evaluation found the roundabout to be perceived as safer, travel speeds were more acceptable, and more drivers were giving way to pedestrians um, compared to the before treatment. There is a paper providing more details, um, and Victoria Walks also has a case study write-up on these, so you can have a look there. And so that's it for today. So new guidance and where it can be found. Here is a summary of where the guidance um, that we talked about today can be found in the Guide to Traffic Management, the Guide to Road Design, and also the Crossings Handout. And now back to you, Ekaterina, for some questions. Thank you very much, um, Jeanette and Anne-Marie. I'm just going to take control back. Here we go. Oh, well, thank you very much. As usual, a fantastic, very interesting presentation. Um, we have quite a few questions, and I'll start with slide 18. So slide 18, um, speed limits. So one of our participants is saying that in New Zealand, on state highways, urban environments are typically only lowered to 40 kilometers per hour. So what is the incremental benefit from 40 to 30? Well, essentially, um, like if you click the button, Ekaterina, so we can see that vertical line. Oh, so essentially, as you move along the impact speed um, on the horizontal, it just means that you're getting an increase in risk. So it's basically just physics. <laughs> um, and you can um, see there that, okay, let's look at the serious or fatal injuries, for example, at the lower band, you're going from um, around 7% at 30 kilometres an hour to around just over 10% at 40. So I think it, it speaks for itself, um, mm -hmm. but 40 is obviously better than 50 or 60 or anything higher. Okay, thank you. Um, all right, next question, slide 26. Um, so here um, on the on on our images, um, sort of a, so the slide shows the pedestrian crossing and cycleway on the approach to the roundabout. So what about the side distance for the vehicles coming off the roundabout? Um, I understand that's the uh, right photo. Um, perhaps is it a safe enough distance? Vehicles coming. Um, I think the whole environment is very slow and there's no um, obstructions um, such as fences um, blocking that view. So from what I understand, that works quite well. Um, obviously, we're not in Auckland, so I haven't um, 
been and had a good look myself, but um, I think overall um, this is performing well from a safety point of view, but I'm sure AT are monitoring that, so that's Auckland Transport. Okay, um, another question in relation to this slide. So um, a participant is curious about the zebra use on all legs at a roundabout. Um, so uh, for drivers, this would seem to be heavy information load to process not only circulating traffic, but um, the pedestrian and bicycle crossings on both um, sort of the entry and exit. So that could be potential safety issue with this treatment. What do you think? I think that it really makes people uh, pay attention and lower their speed. Mm -hmm. So it depends on which way you look at it, but I, the way I think about it is that um, as a driver, you realise there's a lot going on, so you're instinctively going to go a lot slower and be a lot more alert. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I'm going to take us to slide 36, uh, where you talked about tactile indicators. So, um, with regards to tactile indicators that are typically installed just prior, um, 300 millimeters before the curb, um, that could be, um, so if this is on the slope of the ramp, that can increase um, flip issues. So what are your thoughts on the positioning of, um, of the tactile pavers, um, for example, on the top of the ramp rather than on the slope? So, uh, so there's been a lot of work done in um, the slip resistance of those tactile indicators to make sure that they are the least slippery they can be, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and the other point to make is that the warning indicators need to be um, just before stepping out um, rather than further away, otherwise they're not serving their purpose of warning um, someone who is blind or has low vis vision that they're about to um, step onto the road. So I guess it's a, it's a balancing point, but I would have thought that curb ramps shouldn't be steep, so steep that they um, cause slipping issues. Thanks, um, Anne-Marie. Um, another question is in relation to the point that you made um, uh, talking to this slide, when you said generally pedestrians must give way, so that caused some confusion um, amongst um, our attendees. So the question here, do New Zealand or um, Australian states other than New South Wales give priority to pedestrians overturning traffic at intersections? So in New Zealand, they currently don't, but we do have a proposal um, I think it's been considered by Parliament, um, to bring in that rule that um, drivers turning in and out of side roads will give way to pedestrians crossing those side roads. And I don't know off the top of my head which states in Australia allow that. I think from what Anne-Marie was saying, it's most states except Western Australia. Yeah. For regulation, but it's a check. Yeah. Okay, uh, thank you. All right, next question, slide 41. Um, and the question here, so there is risk of vehicles um, stopping over the crossing, um, impeding pedestrian access. So how can this be managed? <clears throat> well, I think um, particularly with uh, 
the zebra crossing markings in New Zealand, we have a limit line uh, or a hold line prior to the crossing. Obviously, if a pedestrian's on it, the car will wait at that hold line. But yes, you're correct that if someone is not on the zebra, of course, the car will come over the crossing to be able to see whether they can um, enter the, the main flow. And I think that that's why it's probably useful to only have these on very low volume side streets so that the risk of that happening is less. Thanks, um, Janet. Um, so next question, um, slide 42. Um, so the continuous footpath treatment provides priority to pedestrians in Australia. So is this priority supported in the road rules to the same extent as zebra crossings? It is in that um, if the um, paving is the same as the footpath, it is counted as road-related area, which I guess is, is a piece of legislation, then um, pedestrians have priority, yes. And that does that road-related area um, clause doesn't exist in New Zealand and Western Australia, so that's why um, you can't, that they don't give priority to pedestrians here. And I think just to note that we talk about New Zealand and Western Australia because that's what the discussion was back in 2019 with the working group. Uh, we're not in completely up to date with any rule changes that might have happened in other states since that time. So maybe other states have gone that way. Um, you know, we don't know. So that that's just where it was then. Western Australia may have already moved to allowing that priority, but New Zealand is on the journey and hopefully that will happen soon. All right, oh, thank you. Um, so next question, slide 43, uh, crossing side roads. Um, so are there any low cost options for continuous footpath treatments that don't involve changes to drainage? Um, Brisbane tends to use painted threshold treatments in, in the neighbourhood, so how effective are these? Well, I think they basically mean they aren't continuous footpath treatments because I think the, the idea is that you have a smooth transition from the footpath to the crossing as pointed out there in the benefits to pedestrians. So that's kind of the key part of the de definition of a continuous footpath treatment. Um, if it is flush with and such that people would go curb ramps in, um, and I, I've seen that a lot, but it's not what we're terming a continuous footpath treatment in the Austro's guidance. So in terms of uh, continuous footpath treatment, so um, in which case would you use a continuous footpath or a zebra crossing on the side road as both of those obviously provide pedestrian priority? I guess it's in relation to slides 44, 45. Yeah, so I'll just stay on this one. Well, if you're in New Zealand or Western Australia, you would uh, don't have the option. You would go to a zebra <laughs> if you wanted to provide priority. Yes. Um, and I guess it comes down to like consistency along a route. So I do recall when I took that photo of the zebra in Sydney that along that particular road, it was um, a consistent kind of treatment along the road. Um, mm -hmm. So. <coughs> Yeah, there's probably different things to consider, but there's also traffic control um, device requirements for zebra crossings um, 
that aren't necessarily requirements for continuous footpath treatment, so that could be another consideration. Yeah, such as in New Zealand, we have a black and white um, striped pole. Mm. So when we get to the point where continuous footpath treatments um, might occur, that might be considered a better urban design outcome in terms of um, less devices in the environment. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, we have a question in relation to slide 57, um, raised tables on sleeps. So what is the impact on turning heavy vehicles and are there any ways to alleviate the risk? So I guess um, the part of the webinar where Jeanette talks about ramp um, gradients applies in this case as well in terms of a, a raised um, platform on a slip lane. So if you were designing to accommodate heavy vehicles, you'd need to um, have a flatter ramp, which maybe then doesn't slow the speeds as much. Yeah, or at least have a slower um gradient on the departure side That's of right. the ramp. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think um, the impact on heavy vehicles is more of a, um, a comfort thing and a bit of noise as well, like when when heavy vehicles go over um, raised things, it can create a bit of a noise which can be quite unnerving for people around it, but I don't think it's going to like tip a vehicle over or such. Thank you. Um, so we have a question here as well. Do we have any guidance um, on maintaining cycle lanes through unsignalized pedestrian crossings? Um, through unsignalized. Through unsignalized pedestrian crossings. So I guess in uh, the crossings webinar last week, we talked about that curb extensions and um, pedestrian refuges or median refuges can create pinch points for cyclists. And I guess mm -hmm. the same thing applies um, at an unsignalized intersection that you've got to make sure you have enough, either have enough space for cars and a, a cyclist to go alongside each other or make the lane narrower and the cyclist has to take the lane. But it's, uh, potentially the person's asking about um, does the cyclist still have priority? So if, if, the, mm. if the crossing isn't a priority crossing and cyclists are on the road mm. in the cycle lane, then cyclists still have priority. If they're in a separated um, cycleway that's um, crossing that um, crossing point, you can um, put a giveaway in for the, the cyclists and some kind of um, like raised platform across the cycle facility, like we talked about in the road space allocation webinar, mm -hmm. where cycle uh, separated cycle facilities were passing bus stops, which mm -hmm. pedestrians had to move from the footpath side to the stop side. So it, it kind of depends on depends what the person's on asking, but I think that might cover it. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully that answered the question. Um, so another question here. So the raised pedestrian crossings and zebras um, require 3D scan of the intersection um, as uh, there is risk getting um, the stormwater system affected. So the cost of that um, has to be included in the scope of works and it's quite often sort of pushing the cost of the project to a lot higher price. Um, so and it's hard getting that with a rather limited budget. So 
have you had any experience with with that how to manage manage um yes so which it, it's perfect that you're on slide 57 because mm -hmm. that actually um the top voter there is a a raised zebra but what you can mm -hmm. see there is that it does actually um start at the fender level so the stormwater can still get around that corner so what you do is your ramp actually has two gradients it has the gradient mm -hmm. coming up from the fender to full height ramp but also the ramps that the vehicles go over so that is a way around it obviously um, it can reduce the effectiveness of the raised crossing but mm -hmm. it is quite common where um, there's a concern around blocking the stormwater and providing additional stormwater infrastructure all right. Um, well, we are running out of time. I'm just going to ask one last question uh, in relation to roundabouts. So how do we balance narrowing the entrances to a seized pedestrian crossing against providing space for on-road cyclists? So how to find that balance? Yeah, so this is a, um, a common sort of treatment here in New Zealand where we actually uh, put in a shower marking at the point where we want the cyclist to take the lane. So as they're approaching the limit line at the roundabout, um, the width, which does reduce the speed, reduces the crossing distance, does require the cyclist to take the lane. And that's actually a recommended practice, particularly if the cyclist is turning right anyway, because you don't want them over to the left. But it will do the roundabout, you may, have some roundabouts where it's actually um, not friendly for them to share the lane and therefore you might want to take them off-road prior to that narrowing and send them around an off-road path network. Thanks. Well, I think we have to wrap up here. Um, thank you very much, Jeanette and, and Marie. Again, fantastic presentation. Thanks so much for our audience and all of your questions. Um, and before we wrap up, just um, a few words about our next webinars. Um, so we have two sessions on pedestrian planning and design left, um, in which we will be talking about activity centers and residential areas. So please register for those if you haven't already. Um, as we mentioned already as well, we will have a session on the effectiveness and implementation of race safety platforms on the 4th of March. Um, which might be of interest to um, all of you or some of you. Um, there will also be webinars on freeway capacity analysis, road public transport priority tool, bridge asset management, management and many others. So the full list of um, webinars um, can be viewed on our website, so please visit for more information and to register. Um, and um, as we close out today's session, there will be a questionnaire um, that will pop up on your screen. So please take a couple of minutes to fill it in. Um, uh, give us your feedback. Let us know what you liked or you didn't like, what suggestions you have for our future webinars. Um, thanks again, uh, everyone. Stay well and safe and um, enjoy the rest of your day and we will see you next time.